0: We are partway through a sermon series, kind of a longer one, through the book of Luke. And so we're kind of hitting it a few sections at a time, a few weeks at a time. Uh, Today we find ourselves in Luke chapter 7, verses 11 to 17. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If not, we're going to have the words up on the screen as we work through it. Uh, If you don't know the book of Luke, uh, it's one of the Gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, Luke is interesting because at the beginning of the book of Luke, he actually tells us why he has written this book and and to whom he is sort of his main uh, audience member. Uh, He's he's written this for a man named Theophilus, who is a a dignitary of some sort. Uh, He's a man who has some sense of faith or some sense of understanding about Jesus, but has some doubts as well. And so Luke is writing this book so that uh, Theophilus would would know all of the details about the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, this is what Luke says uh, right at the intro, verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1. He says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So that's what we're reading when we read the book of Luke. It's, it's Luke who is a, a sort of amateur historian, but, but not amateur in the sense that he wasn't great at his job. It's just his main job was actually to be a physician. He was a doctor. And because of his love for Jesus, he had come to faith. And because he saw the need for it, he began to, to write down the things as he, as he spoke with people. And so that's what we're reading. Now, the fact that Luke was a medical doctor uh, means that it should come as no surprise that there are quite a few instances where we see Jesus dealing with illness and with death. Last week, we saw Jesus heal uh, the centurion's servant, just with a word. Uh, today, the stakes are raised because we see him uh, in his power, not only to help the living, but also the dead. This actually is one of the most essential components of the Christian faith, that there is help for us, even in the most dire circumstances of our lives, even when our our life is is not going to last much longer. See, when all other means of help and hope are spent, when the ER staff have done their best with medication, with chest compressions, with defibrillators, when the chemo has run its course, when the last breath has been breathed, and when the body has been sent down to the morgue, that is where Jesus does his best work. And that's what we're going to see this morning as we look to our text, as Jesus raises a, a widow's, Son, so uh, I invite you to listen along or, or turn with me if you have your Bible. I'm going to read our text this morning. Uh, it's again Luke 7, beginning in verse 11. Here's God's word to us this morning. Soon afterward, he, that is Jesus, went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the buyer. And the bearers stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us. And God has visited his people, and this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. That's God's word to us this morning. I want to pause one more time for prayer just uh, as we dig into the word of God. So join with me. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for this text. uh, Just an amazing text, Lord, a miracle, Jesus, of your power over death. I pray, Lord, as we look into it, as we consider it uh, carefully, Lord, that you would speak to us. Lord, help us to understand more of who you are and more of our need for you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, obviously, the focus remains on Jesus. That's, as we saw, why Luke is writing this, the whole book. Uh, we're going to see two main things that this text reveals about Jesus. One, that Jesus has uh, perfect compassion. And secondly, that Jesus has power over death. And then to end our time, we're going to ask one final question. So two points and one question. First point, Jesus has perfect compassion. Just to set the scene a little more clearly, let's look again at verse 11. It says, soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. So at this time, Jesus is doing most of his ministry in the area of Capernaum, which is kind of the northern, north of the Sea of Galilee, just on the coast there. The town of Nain was about a day's journey outside of Capernaum. So that means that Jesus and his entourage, uh, they would have left Capernaum probably in the morning and arrived uh, to the town of Nain, maybe around four o'clock, about a day's journey. And uh, what we see there is that, you know, Jesus has a bit of a crowd around him, but there's actually a crowd coming out of the city. Look at verse 12. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. And the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. So the custom in that time was for uh, bodies, dead bodies, to be buried the same day. So that means that this young man uh, died probably earlier that morning. We don't know how, but what we do know is that his mother was going through something she had already gone through before. It says there that she's she's a widow, which means if you want to picture the scene in your mind... That as Jesus approached the town, what he would have seen is is first uh, a coffin, a a buyer, an open coffin being carried out by the pallbearers. Then behind that would have been the woman all alone because she had no other immediate family. That's where the family would walk. And then behind her would have been uh, mourners wailing and weeping and then a considerable crowd. So probably most of the town. I mean, this was not a big town. Everyone would have known her and they would have known already what she had been through. You can imagine the conversations kind of leading up to this, this funeral. People saying, she just lost her husband, or, or she's been through this before. And, and now who's, who's going to care for her? Who's going to provide for her? Who? Who's going to protect her? The least we can do is, is go to the funeral. And so there were many, many people following her. And we see there in the text that it says a man or a young man. So this was not a, a child. This was a a young man, but for a mother uh, that really doesn't make much of a difference. A son is a son. And here we have a mother dealing with feelings of loss and grief and sorrow. And what makes things all the worse is that she was very familiar with these things. Like someone who struggles with chronic pain, that the familiarity with it almost makes it worse. Because you know what is to come. You know what this is going to be like. I came across uh, an account of a, of a couple that knew what it meant to lose a child. In fact, they lost three children. Uh, Their names are Joseph and Mary Lou Bailey. They lost three sons, one uh, at 18 days old after a surgery, after the pregnancy uh, didn't work and the child died. Another son they lost at five years old from leukemia and a third at 18 years old from a sledding accident. They're believers And Joseph Bailey, the husband, he felt led to write write a a small book uh, called um, The View from a Hearse. And the subtitle is The Christian View of Death. And in that book, here's what he writes. He says, Of all the deaths, that of a child is the most unnatural and hardest to bear. In Carl Jung's words, it is a period placed before the end of a sentence, sometimes when the sentence has hardly begun. We expect the old to die. The separation is always difficult, but it comes as no surprise. But the child, the youth, life lies ahead with its beauty, its wonder, its potential. Death is a cruel thief when it strikes down the young. Children were made for, for laughter, for sunshine, not pain. A child is bone of his parents' bone, flesh of their flesh. When a child dies, part of the parent is buried. He says, I met a man once who was in his 70s. During our 10 minutes together, he brought out a faded photograph from his wallet, his child who had died 50 years before. You you can, I think, begin to feel the weight that was threatening to crush this poor woman. The grief, the sadness, the loneliness. And I think we can also imagine the, the difficulty that her friends and family would have had in that situation of not knowing how to comfort her. I mean, probably all of us feel unsure about what to do in these kinds of situations, right? We feel like we, anything we do would be the wrong thing to do. I mean, some of us, we, we try to enter into that time of mourning. We weep and wail loudly. There would have been some women doing that there in the funeral procession. There's others of us that, that simply offer a quiet consolation. And there are some of us, probably many of us, who just, we kind of keep our distance because we, we, we feel like whatever we say, it, it might make things worse. Or we feel self-conscious. Or we're we're preoccupied with the things that are going on in our own lives. That's not the truth for for Jesus, though. See, Jesus, he has perfect compassion. Even in the midst of the wailing. (laughs) Look at verse 13 and 14. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and he touched the buyer. See, what we see with Jesus is, is a compassion that is immediate. As soon as he sees her, he walks right up to her. He doesn't stay at a distance. He's not unsure what to do. He knows what would be best for this woman. We also see a heartfeltness to his compassion. He seems to really mean what he says, "Do, do not weep." What he means for is, I, "I hope that you would not weep. I wish that you would have reason not to weep. His, his heart is full of love for this woman. But the other thing, which is a little more difficult to see, is that he's selfless in his compassion. See, in that culture, in the Jewish culture, uh, no one would go near a dead body. Uh, No one, unless you had to, as the pallbearers, no one would go near a dead body. No one would have touched the coffin because it meant that you would be uh, ceremonially unclean. It meant that you would have to have a period of time outside of the community of faith. Uh, so you would have to do, go through some ritual cleansing. You would then go show yourself to the priest. They would proclaim you clean. Then you could come back into the fold. So no one wanted to go through all that, so they would, they would stay away. But notice Jesus, he doesn't care about any of that. All he cares about is showing this woman the kind of love that she needs. See, I think we all want to be able to show this kind of compassion. That there's a level of our heart that we, we want to be able to reach out, to be able to connect with the people in our lives but the truth is that we, we rarely do a very good job of it. Most of the time, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we are so preoccupied with, with the many, many things that are going on in our lives that, that we don't tend to show the, this level of compassion, this immediacy, this heartfeltness, this selflessness to the people around us. But see, Jesus, he's, he's full of that. How is it that Jesus is always so full of compassion, so full of love? Well, I came across uh, this line uh, by a writer named Joni Erickson tada I'm not sure if you know her. She is a, a Christian woman, writer, uh, speaker, uh, author. Uh, she has been a quadriplegic since she was young. And so she writes a lot about uh, issues of uh, suffering and disability. And here's what she writes uh, about Jesus. She says, Since Jesus was not caught up in his, with his own concerns, he was able fully and selflessly to enter into someone else's sufferings. See, Jesus, he was human, which meant that he, he, he could sense, he had a sense of this woman's pain and sorrow. He had, he had lived life as a human being 30 years up to this point. He knew what it meant to have emotional weight. He knew what it meant to experience loss. But the other thing about him is that he wasn't just human, he was divine. Which meant that he had a, he had a supernatural capacity to, to, to show love, to have a resource of love. And he was never focused on himself. His sinlessness meant that he could focus always on the person in front of him. That's why if you look at his ministry, he's always looking around. He's looking for the person who's hurt, looking for the person who's, who's sad, looking for the person who's suffering in some way, and he goes immediately. He always has more and more love to give. He is perfect in his compassion. Now, we aren't perfect. But if you're here this morning and you are a follower of Christ, uh, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And you are called to show this kind of love to the people around you. I mean, are there people in your life that if you're honest with yourself, you'd say, I, I've been hesitant. I've held back a bit in terms of the, the love that I could show them. In terms of my understanding, in terms of my time, in terms of my, my energy. Could it be that your preoccupation with yourself has hindered the compassion that God wants you to show the people around you? What would it look like? What would it look like this week if as you began the week, you, you would pray, Lord, I pray that you'd help me to have my, my ears tuned to the, to the plight of those around me. Lord, would you give me a, a heart for those people in my life, maybe people I'm going to run into this week, and that I might, I might not hesitate, that I might seek to show this kind of compassion so that the people around me would, would feel this kind of love. Now, I'm not talking about bursting in on a funeral or something that dramatic. But what about a call? What about a text? What about a coffee? What about an extra moment in the hallway with someone at work that you just, you've been noticing has been down and yet you haven't yet asked them why? See, showing compassion says something important to the people around us. It says something that God wants them to hear, which is that they are known, that they are, they are understood, they are loved, they are cared for we have an amazing opportunity when we enter into the suffering of others to communicate some essential truths of God for them. In fact, this is exactly what God wants for us, especially for those of us who are believers. Look at what it says in 2 Corinthians. There's a connection between our the comfort we've experienced and, and what we should show to others. It says there, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us, In all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. What that's saying is that if you are a believer, if you know Jesus, if you really know him, then you would have received comfort from him. This kind of compassion understanding, blessing, love, forgiveness, in whatever situation you've been in, where you've been in a dark place, you hopefully have been able to turn to the Lord and experience his grace and mercy. That comfort is not simply for you. It's a comfort that you are meant to pass on to those around you. And very often, you can probably think of times when you've, you've been talking with someone and you think to yourself, man, I, I know exactly what they're going through. The Lord has taken me through a time of suffering that... That's very much the same. And I've learned something about who God is. And you have an opportunity to share that with him. That's an amazing blessing, an amazing good that God can bring out of the difficult times in our lives. And what it speaks to is the fact that there is a comfort of God. It's not just general comfort, kind of airy, fairy, just general good feelings. It is a truth. The truth is that God loves us and has demonstrated our love for us in the sending of Jesus that Jesus is the perfect compassion of God. Not just because he has warm words for the people around him, but because he has done what needed to be done to bring ultimate hope and peace into our lives. So Jesus, he has perfect compassion, but what we see here is is some of that perfect compassion in action because we see that he brings hope in the midst of, of death. So let's turn to our second point. First, we've seen Jesus has perfect compassion now, We see his power over death. You know, one of the reasons I think that we stay at a distance in times of mourning and suffering is because we hate feeling empty-handed. You know what I mean? You know that expression, to be empty-handed? It's rarely a good thing to be empty-handed. It means that you feel like you have nothing to contribute. I mean, if you go to a potluck and you're empty-handed, you feel horrible. I didn't realize there's a potluck. I thought we were ordering, oh, sorry, guys, you just have a little bit of everything. I won't eat much. I you feel horrible. You're empty-handed. You have nothing. If you go to like a baby shower or bridal shower and you forget a gift, I thought you were bringing, oh, no, we have nothing. We walk in, you feel so lame because you don't have anything to contribute. That's, I think, often how we feel when it comes to death. We always feel empty-handed. So much so that we go out of our way to fill our hands with things when we go to visit someone, when they're mourning. We, we bring flowers, we bring a card, we bring a casserole. Those aren't bad things. It's just an expression of our love that we know is, is not sufficient. See, the truth is that when it comes to death, everyone feels empty-handed. Even the best doctors, even the most brilliant surgeons, there is a point on the operating table where they, they have nothing left to do. They have to call the time of death. They, even they, are empty-handed in that moment. All of humanity is empty-handed when it comes to death. But what we see here in this scene is that that's not true for Jesus. That Jesus' hands are full. In fact, what we see is that he raises his hand. And he stops the coffin. He stops the funeral procession. He stops the train of death that has already left the station. We see this in verse 14. He came up. He touched the buyer. The bearers stood still. Just imagine the drama of that moment. There's the, the coffin, then the woman, then the mourners, then the whole town. You'd imagine they're probably walking along, kind of heads down, somber, right? Shuffling along. And then all of a sudden, they, they, they bump into the people in front of them. And they look up. What, why, why are we stopped? And they look ahead, and there's, there's Jesus. And he stopped the whole thing. And, and everyone's wondering, what is, what's he going to do? What's going to happen next? Why has he stopped a funeral? the magnitude of this moment is, is difficult to overstate because it's literally life and death staring each other in the face, which would have been very surprising for death because death, he's not used to any challengers. I mean, if you think about death's attitude towards life, death is Goliath up on the hill looking down at all the pitily Israelites, right? Ridiculing them, mocking them, absolutely confident in his power and his authority to take life. There are no words that can be spoken to death. Death always has the attitude, look, my word is the last one. I mean, there are words spoken from the side of life, but they they are pleading and begging. They are asking for more time. I'm not ready, not now, not yet. But death never listens. Why should he? He knows how this is going to go. This death is, is the same as every other death. Millions before and millions after will die like this young man has died. And who can say anything to death? Well, on this day, there is someone who said something. And it wasn't a request. It wasn't pleading. It wasn't begging. It was a command. Jesus said, 14 and 15, look at the verses. Jesus said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. See, this time Jesus spoke and death obeyed. Just like Jesus spoke to the storm clouds and they obeyed. Or he spoke to the disease and it obeyed. Or he spoke to the demons. Do you see that all of the things that plague humanity, Jesus speaks to them like they're a trained dog. When he speaks, they have to listen. Because he has the authority. So the young man, the young man sat up. The young man started to speak. The mourners, they, they stopped wailing. Wailing. Everyone else took a step back. They were, they were terrified because they knew what this meant. They knew that there was only one kind of power that could raise the dead. See, this was surprising. This, this was astonishing. This was astounding for that crowd. But, but interestingly, it, it was not unfamiliar. See, everyone there would have, would have been Jewish. They would have been raised with the teaching of the Old Testament. And as they saw that widow's son raised from the dead, there would have been a story that popped into their mind. one they would have been taught as they were a children of another widow and another son whom God had raised from the dead. This happened back in the Old Testament, back in the book of 1 Kings. Elijah was a prophet at the time. Elijah was walking through the countryside. There was a land was full of drought. Everyone was near starvation and he came upon a widow and her son. He provided for them miraculously, provided food. They were kind to him. But then shortly thereafter the widow's son got ill and died. And the widow got angry at Elijah, saying, What are you doing? You came here, would it seem like to help us, but now my son is dead? Elijah the prophet said, Give me your son. And here's what we find in 1 Kings chapter 17. Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O oh Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And look at the ending of that scene. It's very much like our passage today. And Elijah took the child, brought him down from the upper chamber into the house, and delivered him to his mother, gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. You see her conclusion. Their conclusion is, I I see that power that you raised my son. I know that you are from God. And the crowd there around uh, Jesus in the coffin, they make the same conclusion. Look at verse 16. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. Now, the interesting thing here is they're praising Jesus with the highest praise they can imagine. They, They think this must be a great prophet. They can't imagine anything higher, but there is something higher. See, the fantastic thing is that these stories are meant, we're meant to have them in our mind, but not just for the similarities, also for the differences. See, Elijah, when he wanted to raise that son from the dead, he stretched himself out. He pleaded with God, God, please, you have the power. Raise this child from the dead. But Jesus, there's no pleading. There there is no activity on his part. He just spoke. Why? Because the power over death was within him. What was being shown here is that Jesus was more than just a great prophet. He was God himself and that he has authority over death. And that meant that there was not just compassion like we would show. There was perfect compassion for this widow and for her son. And there was a beautiful display of God's power and his glory. And that's why everyone took a step back. They were just in awe of what they were seeing. Two things we've seen so far. Jesus has perfect compassion. He still does to this day. Secondly, he has power over death. But the question I want to ask is this. What was the point of this whole scene from Jesus' point of view? What is it that he was intending when he came and when he he did this miracle? Now, you might say uh, that is sort of a, seems like a foolish question. Didn't we already answer that? I mean, he did it because he wanted to show compassion. Right? That was the first thing we, we saw, to help the widow and her son, to show compassion. Yes, yes, it was to show them compassion. But if that was the ultimate point, what about all the other children that died that day? What about all the other young men who died in, in Israel that Jesus did not raise from the dead? If that was the main point, why didn't Jesus do this more? What, why are there only three records of, of people being raised from the dead? Jairus' daughter, Lazarus, and this Young man, why aren't there more? If this is what Jesus came to do, why was this it? And you might say, Well, remember the other point that this was about who Jesus is. Right? This was this was a picture of, of his power over death, a picture of the gospel. And that is also true. In fact, you'd be hard pressed to find a clearer picture of the hope of the gospel. This young man was dead. Everyone knew he was dead. And yet by the hope of Christ, the word of Christ, he came back to life. That's exactly what we find in the truth of the gospel, the message of the the whole New Testament. Jesus came so that we would have life. In fact, we have it recorded. Uh, Ephesians 2 speaks of us as being dead in our sins. Here it is, uh, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That's speaking to all humanity. All of us who turn away from God, we all are condemned to death rightly condemned because of our sin. So even though we walk around, even though we're living our lives, the truth of the matter is that we have only death to look forward to. Just like the, the boy in the coffin, there's nothing we can do about it because dead people don't just get up. But, but the hope is not in us, it's in God. Verse 4 to 6. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. So you see that the parallels, that we're raised up in Christ. If we have faith, we have the hope of life. It's a picture, a wonderful, compelling picture of the hope of the gospel. The problem is, if it's, if it's a picture, there are those who would say, well, well yeah, I mean, Jesus, used lots of pictures. He he spoke in parables all the time. So what you have here in this biblical text is the writer Luke doing what Jesus uh, did, which is to to create a story. This didn't actually happen. This was just a picture so that we might get some sense of, of the power of Jesus. Sigmund Freud spoke for many skeptics when he described the miracles of Jesus like this. The miracles in the Gospels contradicted everything that had been taught by sober observation and betrayed too clearly the influence of the activity of the human imagination. See, there are many people who would read the Bible and say, man, I love the teachings of Jesus. So compelling, so great. But these parts, you know, these are, there's a lot of them. There's, there's myths, there's, um, there's poetic images, there's things that they inserted so that we might have a reverence for Jesus. But it's not like there was an afternoon in the town of Nain where some boy actually came back to life. I mean, you can't have a sober mind, is what Freud is saying, and think that this is what actually happened. But let's remember for a moment who is writing this. It's Luke. It's not a poet. It's not a, not a rabbi, even not a novelist, not an artist. This is a, a medical doctor trained in the art of sober observation. This is a medical doctor who, who wants to write to a dignitary, someone who's struggling with faith and wants to give them the evidence that they can grab hold onto to say, yeah, this actually happened. This isn't a claim to some transcendent truth up there. It's saying, no, this happened down here on the earth. In fact, this is the way that the early church always explained the miraculous events of Jesus' life. They didn't just make much and make them bigger and grander. They would say things like, well, why don't you go talk to someone? Like it hasn't been that long. In fact, I came across uh, correspondence from a a man named Quadratus, which I know some of you are still expecting. I suggest to you, Quadratus, to be the next name of our Tri-City child. (laughs) Quadratus, Bishop of Athens, he wrote uh, just around the turn of the first century to the Roman Emperor Hadrian, who was asking questions about this new faith, this Christianity that was growing. And look at what he says about the claims to, to see this as a genuine, something that actually happened he said to the emperor, the persons who were healed and those who were raised from the dead by Jesus were not only seen when they were healed and raised, but were always present also afterwards. And not merely during the time that the Savior walked upon the earth, but after his departure. Also, they were still there for a considerable time so that some lived even until our times. What he's saying is, look, if you're wondering about these claims of the Christian faith, it didn't happen that long ago. You could go to the town of Nain. This, this event didn't happen up on a mountaintop in some remote place. It happened in the public square. You would go and ask, hey, did, was there like a widow's son who was raised from the dead? Everyone would know that there were hundreds of eyewitness accounts to these kinds of miracles testifying to the validity and the veracity of the biblical account that Jesus, in fact, had this power. So this is, this is not just a picture There's a better word for this. This is a foretaste. This is a foretaste of the gospel. And if you're wondering, what is the difference between a picture and a foretaste, let me tell you. Imagine, imagine that you're going on a road trip. My family and I just went on a road trip. It was fantastic. Apart from the screaming. It was great. So, we're on a road trip. Imagine that you arrive in a town, you go to a new restaurant, a restaurant you've never been to. And the question in your mind is, is is there good food at this restaurant? Like, is it going to satisfy me? Are we going to walk out feeling, man, that was a good meal? How would you find out if there's good food at this restaurant? Well, the restaurant, uh, they would want to uh, convince you of the greatness of their food. So they do things like put pictures of the food on the menu, right? The really classy places. They put the picture, the pancake stacked high. They describe all the different toppings. And you're like, they want you to to come to the conclusion. This is going to be good. We're going to go here. We're going to eat here. This is going to be great. But we all know that a picture can only do so much, but an appetizer. An appetizer, that, that is helpful, right? When you get some chicken wings, some chicken taquitos, you get a salad. Once you taste that food, then you know, man, this is good. Man, we should have ordered more. My, my appetite has been wet because I can taste what they are serving. I know that once we eat our meal here, we are going to be satisfied. This is what we see here in this scene. It is compassion for this woman and her son. It is a picture of the truth of the gospel. But more than that, it's meant to wet our appetite for heaven. See, that's why Jesus did all of these things. He did it so that we might get a glimpse, not, not just a glimpse, but, a, but that our palate would be wet so that we would say, man, this life that I'm living is not, is not everything it should be. That when Jesus speaks about the kingdom of heaven, that is what I want. That is where I will be fully satisfied. That's the meal. That's what we have to look forward to. See, with Jesus, we have him laying these, these kind of hints and these glimpses, these these foretastes, so that when it comes to the resurrection, people will say, I get now what he was talking about. See, there's even a difference between this, this young man who was raised and Jesus' resurrection. Because that young man, he died again. He was raised up, but then he died. Jesus, Jesus was raised up to live eternally. That's what the first death was pointing to. The first raising was pointing to a resurrection that would be eternal. See, that's the hope that we have in Christ. The the truth that death itself on the cross was put to death. There's a great poem that uh, I love and that you may know by John Donne. He was writing back in the 1600s. It's called Death, Be Not Proud. And I'm just going to read you the first line and the last line because they're the best ones. Here's what he writes. He's a Christian. He says, Death, be not proud. Though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. One short sleep past we wake eternally and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. He knows that death is dead because of what Christ has done. That Christ has conquered death. Death no longer has the confidence to go reach in and take anyone's life because Jesus has died and then came back to life, conquering the source of our death which is sin itself. We see this also in the word of God. 1 Corinthians 15 says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? See, these are not just poetic or dramatic words. They describe the reality of living with a hope beyond death. And that hope, it infuses our life even here, even now. I saw this this past week. Uh, Some of you may know that that someone who's a part of our church uh, passed away this week. Her name is Shirley. This is, this is her here, Shirley Wong. Uh, she, she hasn't been around that much lately because she had been struggling with health problems. Uh, if you know Shirley, you know that, that she was no stranger to suffering. That she was in and out of hospitals a, a lot of the time. But if you know Shirley, you also know that, and you would never know it to talk to her. She was always so full of life, so full of hope. And do you know that that hope, it sustained her even to the brink of death. I went to visit her on Friday. A number of us came throughout the weekend. We knew that the cancer had come back. She knew that that it had metastasized, that there wasn't a lot of time left. But she went even quicker than we thought. When I spoke to her, I read her this passage. I said, Shirley, you know, we're going to be preaching this next week. I want to read this to you. And she heard about the the sun being raised, and she just said, man, that's beautiful. And I said to her, Shirley, what's going through your mind right now? What, What are you concerned about? And she said, well, you know, I, I'm going to miss talking with the, the ladies at work. I love to share the gospel with them. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do that again, but I'm going to try with the nurses, she said. <laughs> See, for surely, for Shirley, the hope that she had, it wasn't just a picture. It wasn't just something written down. She had, she had tasted heaven. She had a a hope and a peace and a joy, even at at a point where most people in the world would have been anxious, would have been worried, would have been pleading, I need more time. See, she knew where she was going. She knew her Savior. We should be asking ourselves if we have this peace this morning. Because none of us knows at what point death will come. And for those of us who have this hope, We should also be asking ourselves, when was the last time we shared it with the people around us? Because what you'll notice in the very last verse of our text, in verse 17, is this. And this report, this report about Jesus spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. And of course it did. Of course it did. People witnessed a miracle. People witnessed something coming from death to life. You're going to tell your neighbor. You're going to tell the people around you because it's amazing, because it's fantastic, and because it it brings a hope that that no one else had had before. See, see, this is the compassion of Jesus, shown perfectly for this woman and her son. But it is also a foretaste for us. And my hope is that for each one here, that that we are longing to have that meal in heaven, that we are longing for that life eternal. And I would just say to you, if if you don't have an assurance that 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 is yours, you, you can have that. It requires simply a recognition of your need. Jesus, I need you. I'm full of sin. I need to be saved. And a confidence that he is the one who was raised first in anticipation of your future raising, your future conquering over death. So I'm going to pray all together, and we're going to praise God for this. Please join with me. Lord God, we do thank you. We thank you, Jesus, for for the picture, for the truth, for the, for the glory, Lord, that we see. That, Jesus, you have authority over death. You have authority over everything that plagues humanity. I pray, Jesus, for everyone here. Lord, would you help us to grab hold of that, Lord? For those of us who don't yet have that kind of faith, Lord, whatever you're stirring in our hearts, would you prompt us to action? Prompt us to ask questions? Prompt us to pray? Jesus, the truth is that you are the one who saves us. We don't save ourselves. And we're thankful for that. We're thankful that no matter how dark a place we find ourselves in, that it's by your hand, by your power that we're drawn out. And so I pray, Lord, I pray also, Lord, for us as a church, that we would be people of compassion. Lord, that we we would look outside of ourselves, make it a habit of seeking out those who are hurting so that we might comfort them. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you for your love and your grace. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.